Our first reading, as Randy has said, is Isaiah chapter 49. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword, in the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me a polished arrow, in his quiver he hid me away. And he said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain, I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord, and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant, to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I'll make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach, may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves. Because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. And our second reading is from Acts chapter 13, verse 13 onwards. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and, motioning with his hand, said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of his people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he let, led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a saviour, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No. But behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets which are read every Sabbath, 
fulfilled them by condemning him. And they found in him no guilt worthy of death. They asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news, that when God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be free by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing, and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Father, we thank you so much uh, for the mothers that you have provided uh, in our church. Father, thank you that they have the opportunity uh, to, to bear children and to be mothers and to uh, raise children. Uh, we, we thank you for the gift of mothers in our lives. Father, we thank you uh, yeah, for uh, the mothers as they have loved us so unconditionally. And we pray, Father, that you would continue to grow them in the Lord. We pray also for those uh, for whom Mother's Day is very difficult, uh, either because they have lost a mother or, um, or they are not in a touch with their mothers, and we pray that you would comfort them during this time. Father, we uh, thank you so much for your word to us this morning. Please speak to us, please encourage us, and please change us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Have you ever had a conversation with someone about Jesus or about the Christian faith where you thought to yourself, this person is beyond saving? Uh, Steve raised this idea for us at the end of uh, his sermon last week. Is there someone that you've ever spoken to where you think this person is beyond saving? Uh, It might be that they're super devoted to their religion or to their atheism. It might be that they're super well thought out and firm in their views and their beliefs. It might be that they've had bad experiences with Christians uh, or with the church. I remember thinking uh, thinking this about a couple of people from my previous job. Uh, There was one particular person who I thought was so intelligent and so firm in their conviction that there was no way that they'd ever believe in Jesus. And I was so sure of this that I didn't even bother trying to have a conversation about the gospel or about Jesus with them. Have you ever had that experience? I'm sure many of us have felt that way about a colleague or a classmate or a friend or even a family member. But you see the problem with this, right? Whether uh, it's because we feel inadequate uh, to persuade them of the gospel, or whether we have uh, assumptions about what's going on in their hearts, or whether we have an ability to see beyond who they are now, all of those things mask a deep problem. And that is that we have too small a view of God. We have too small a view of God. When we think that this person, that that person is beyond saving, what we're essentially saying is that there are people in this world that even God is unable or unwilling to save. And having too small a view of God is a big problem. And this episode in Acts 13 shows us why. So make sure your Bibles are open there at Acts 13 and follow along. And we pick up the story straight after last week, and we see that Paul and his companions travel to Antioch in Pisidia. Now, just a quick note uh, that this Antioch there in the middle of the screen is different from the one mentioned last week, which is uh, on the right of the screen there in Syria. The Antioch in Syria is where Paul's sending church is located, and it's where Paul begins and ends each of his three missions into the Gentile world in the book of Acts. Uh, And next week, when we look at Acts 14, he will continue on to Derby there, down uh, sort of in the middle there, and then he'll ring around and return back, kind of retracing his path, back to his sending church in Antioch in Syria. So two different Antiochs, we're in the other one. Uh, It's also worth noting that when we reach Antioch and Pisidia in the story, Luke slows down the narrative significantly and spends quite a lot of verses recounting what happens over two Sabbath days. Uh, It's likely that what Paul preaches here in the synagogue in Antioch in Pisidia is what we will then go on to preach in other synagogues during his journey. So this is kind of like the proto typical message that he might preach. And so it's important that we, uh, like Luke, slow down and take a look and pay attention to what Paul is saying. 
So we're going to take a look at what happens in each of these two Sabbaths. So if you have an outline there uh, in your bulletins, you'll see that we're looking at this Sabbath and then the next Sabbath, or that Sabbath and then the next Sabbath and then this Sabbath. We're just uh, sorting it out there. So on the first Sabbath, we have an encouraging word. We read in verses 14 and 15 that Paul and his buddies join a synagogue service in Antioch. And just as an aside, uh, this uh, pattern of first visiting the synagogue uh, is something that's repeated throughout Paul's ministry. That whenever he visits a city for the first time, if there is a synagogue there, he will head straight to the synagogue. And by the end of this passage, we'll find out why. And so, you know, you imagine there, Paul and his buddies are sitting there through uh, this synagogue service. The rulers of the synagogue uh, do their usual thing. They come up, they read from the law, that is the Old Testament law, and read from the prophets, that is the Old Testament prophets. And then they ask their guests, Paul and his buddies, to share an encouraging word. If you were asked to share an encouraging word, what would you talk about? Uh, At our leaders' retreat two weekends ago, we had a segment called Stories of Grace. Uh, It was my first time uh, being part of Stories of Grace, and uh, it's a segment where a few of our SLEers shared stories about how God has graciously worked in their lives. And uh, and since it was my first Stories of Grace, I didn't know what to expect, Uh, but what what I came away with was uh, it was such an encouraging time, Uh, just hearing stories about real people, uh, with real things happening to them at SLA Church. But the greatest encouragement from all of those stories, uh, you know, as good as it was to hear stories about real people, uh, the greatest encouragement was seeing the God behind all of those stories, seeing God graciously working in and through real people at SLA Church for almost 50 years. As Paul stands up in the synagogue, he looks out at the crowd of Jews before him, and he shares a story of grace. But it's not just any old story of grace. It is their story of grace. And like with all stories of grace, the main character is God. And so Paul preaches about the salvation that God has promised to his people And he does so in three main sections. So uh, you can see that the first section there, uh, Paul preaches from verses 16 to 25. He preaches about God's promised salvation as it has unfolded throughout the history of Israel. That's section one of his uh, little sermon there in the synagogue. And what Paul does is he summarizes the key events that have shaped the people of Israel. Uh, The events themselves are nothing new to the Jews uh, that he is encouraging. Everyone would have been familiar with their uh, their history, uh, with the history of their own people. But the way Paul recounts these events reveals a pattern. It reveals a pattern in God's gracious work. And the pattern is this. Firstly, God makes a promise. Paul says in verse 17 that the God, uh, that God of this people Israel chose our fathers. And in this, Paul is referring to God choosing Abraham and promising to make of him a great people 
and to give this people a land of their own. And Paul continues to say that God made this people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. But the problem is they are not in their own land. They are in the land of Egypt, and they are living in slavery. And so, uh, the second part of the pattern, God saves his people. With uplifted arm, God led his people out of the land of Egypt with the intention of leading them through the desert and eventually into their own land. But God's people respond with jealousy. You see, on the cusp of entering their promised land, the people of Israel grumbled. They wanted to return to their previous life of slavery in Egypt. Can you imagine that? We're promised a land of freedom, and no, actually, I prefer prison. I prefer slavery. God had promised the land. He had saved his people, and yet they were jealous for their previous life. And so Paul says that God put up with them in the wilderness for 40 years until that first generation, the generation that God rescued out of Egypt, passed on and a new generation would take their place and enter the promised land. And so finally, despite the jealousy of his people, God graciously graciously delivers on his promise. Verse 19, Paul says, that God gave them their land as an inheritance. This is the pattern of God's gracious work. Promise, salvation, jealousy, and grace. And we see this pattern again as Paul continues. Now with a land, God can make good on his promise to make his people into a great nation. You see, they're in the land, but uh, there's still people living in the land. And so God needs to make them a great nation and deliver them from those people, those enemies in the land. And so in verse 20, God raises up judges, leaders whom God appoints to save his people from their enemies in the land. But his people become jealous of all the nations who have kings leading them. And so verse 21, they ask God for a king. And God puts up with their jealous request, giving them Saul as their king for 40 years. But eventually, God removes Saul and graciously delivers on making his nation great by raising up David a man after his own heart, to be their king. And under the Davidic dynasty, God would make his people great. He would secure their land from their enemies. Promise, salvation, jealousy, grace. But Paul goes on. Verse 23, from the offspring of this king, God promises a saviour. A savior, someone who would save God's people from this sinful cycle of jealousy. And John the Baptist would proclaim a baptism of repentance for this salvation. And John the Baptist would point ahead to the coming of Jesus. And this is where Paul ends his first section of the sermon. 
The story of God's promised salvation in the history of Israel culminates in the coming of Jesus. Promise salvation. And then now Paul, in the second section of his speech, brings the story into the present day of the passage. In the second section of his speech, Paul addresses his brothers and sisters from the family of Abraham and those who fear God and brings them into the story, saying in verse 26, have a read there, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. How has this message been sent? Well, Paul goes on to explain that God's promised salvation is fulfilled in his Son, Verses 26 to 37. And how, is this, how, is, how are these promises fulfilled? Well, we return to our pattern. What comes after promise and salvation? Sadly, once again, it's the jealousy of God's people. In verse 27, the Jewish leaders from Jerusalem condemned their own Savior. And their jealousy inadvertently fulfills the words of the prophets, which foretold that this innocent Savior would be rejected by his own people and executed on a tree. But, as we've come to expect, this doesn't thwart God's promise. In fact, their jealousy leads to God graciously fulfilling his promise which he does by raising Jesus from the dead. Promise, salvation, jealousy, and grace. Now the question is, how does the resurrection fulfill God's promises? Well, the resurrection is a little bit like a coronation. And last weekend, King Charles was crowned the king of the United Kingdom and the other Commonwealth realms. Uh, and, he, and he was crowned in a coronation ceremony. Now, he was already king before this. He ascended the throne as soon as his mother passed away. But the coronation confirms his kingship. And this weekend, we've had our own coronation. With Steve crowned. <laughs> Is there a crown? There's no crown. Is there a crown? No. There's a crown, (laughs) crowned as the new senior pastor of SLE Church. Now, we already knew Steve was going to ascend the throne of the senior pastorship, but his commissioning now confirms it. Paul explains that the resurrection confirms Jesus as the promised offspring of David, the true and forever king of Israel the true and forever Davidic king. And he points to the resurrection, confirming Jesus as the Son of God from Psalm 2. And just to clarify, the Son of God, can we grab the Son of God slides up, please? The Son of God does not mean God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. The Son of God is actually a title, and it is referring to the offspring of David, that God promised would be king forever. Uh, The person of whom God says, I will be his father and he will be my son. And this true son of God 
would sit on David's throne forever. Which is why Paul goes on to explain that the resurrection confirms, coronates Jesus to be the true Son of God in fulfillment of Psalm 2 because, unlike King David, Jesus did not stay dead. See, God raising Jesus from the dead is the confirmation and the fulfillment of God's promises for a Savior from the offspring of David. God graciously delivers on His promise of salvation by sending Jesus. And Paul preaches God's promised salvation as it has unfolded throughout Israel's history, as it has been fulfilled in His Son, and now in this third and final section from verses 38 to 41, and it is now proclaimed to the Jews. In Jesus, God's promised Savior, salvation through the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to God's people. And here Paul repeats his pattern. Promise, salvation. Now what will be their response? What will be their response? Paul concludes his sermon in verses 39 to 41 by presenting, them, uh, pre- presenting the Jews that he is speaking with with an encouragement and a warning. An encouragement echoing the reading of the law and a warning echoing the reading of the prophets that happened earlier in their synagogue service. And this is the encouragement. Believing in this Savior will do what the law could not. It will free you. Literally, it will justify you from sin. That's the encouragement Uh, echoing the law, the warning, echoing the prophets. Don't respond with jealousy by rejecting this Savior, like all the other people before you have done. Otherwise, the prophet's uh, prophet's warning will come true, and you will perish. What a way to end the sermon, right? Paul ends the sermon there, and as everyone exits the synagogue, there are murmurings in the crowd. And they invite Paul back to preach again the following Sabbath. Some follow Paul and are encouraged to continue in the grace of God. You see, the signs are positive. But how will God's people ultimately respond? We fast forward to the next Sabbath to find out. Have a look there in your Bibles at verse 44. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Almost the whole city. It appears that the hype around Paul's preaching has spread. This time it's not just Jews and not just God theorists, but everyone who lived in this city. And with this crowd, jealousy rears its ugly head. Verse 45. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with with jealousy, and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. Over two Sabbaths, Paul has proclaimed the message of God's promised Savior and invited the Jews to believe in Jesus for salvation through the forgiveness of sins. Promise, salvation. But when the Gentiles, those who are not Jewish, 
not part of God's original chosen people, come to hear this message. How do God's people respond? Sadly, and in line with the pattern we've seen throughout Israel's history and what the prophets have warned, they respond with jealousy. And so in response, Paul and Barnabas deliver a much shorter sermon this time around. It's two verses long. Don't you wish all sermons were two verses long? Have a look at verse 46. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Now let's unpack this sermonette a little bit. First, he says that it was necessary for the gospel to go first to the Jews. And as we've seen in this passage already, it was necessary because God made promises specifically to the people of Israel. And God, as we know, is faithful to his promises. But because God's original chosen people had thrust the gospel aside, and in doing so judged themselves unworthy of eternal life, Paul and Barnabas deem it necessary to turn to the Gentiles. Why is this pivot necessary? Is God just giving up on the Jews and trying again with a new group of people? Well, verse 47 helps us to see that the answer to that question is no. Paul justifies the pivot with a command that God gives through the prophet Isaiah. You see that even all the way back at the, in the time of the Old Testament, God's plan has been salvation to the ends of the earth. Israel was special, not just because God had picked them out, out of everyone else to be saved. Israel was special because God picked them to be saved and then to bring salvation to everyone else. Look again at what Paul quotes from Isaiah 49. I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you might bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Uh, Who is the you? Well, in the context of the rest of Isaiah 49, the you is the Lord's servant. Now, this servant, this, the Lord's servant, was intended to be Israel herself. Israel was meant to proclaim the salvation of the Lord to the ends of the earth. This is another reason why it was necessary for Paul to speak this salvation to the Jews first. It was so they would not just take up their call to salvation, but also take up their special call to proclaim salvation to the Gentiles. Paul was going, look, this is your message. Now go, proclaim. But Israel's jealousy meant they rejected this call to salvation and they rejected this special call to proclaim this salvation. Which means Paul's pivot is necessary because proclaiming salvation to the Gentiles 
is necessary to God's plan, and the Jews are not interested in doing this proclaiming. But Paul himself is a Jew. And so Paul takes up the role of Israel, of the role of Israel as the Lord's servant from Isaiah 49 for himself. Notice that he said that the Lord has commanded us. Paul turns to the Gentiles and he takes up this mantle. Paul turns to the Gentiles to proclaim the good news of salvation. But when uh, Paul does that, once again, jealousy leads to grace. And this time, it is grace that means salvation to the nations. Israel's jealousy led to Paul pivoting to the Gentiles and led to grace being proclaimed to the nations. It is grace that means salvation to the nations. Grace that means salvation to the ends of the earth. It is grace that means salvation for us. For us. Friends, you see how big God's plan has been from the very beginning. Every one of God's promises of salvation, every response of jealousy from God's people has led to this. God's grace for the nations. How does this make you feel? How does this make you feel? Just like the Gentiles in verse 48, it ought to make us rejoice. It ought to stir us to glorify the word of the Lord. It ought to lead us to believe. It ought to lead us to believe, firstly, that God has truly saved you through the jealousy of His people so that you might be saved from your sins and be given the promise of eternal life. But it ought to also lead you to believe, secondly, that God is at work bringing salvation to the ends of the earth even now as His people shine as lights by proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ to the nations. And so, as you sit here on this Sabbath, listening to Paul's words of encouragement all those Sabbaths ago, how will you respond? How will you respond? Will you rejoice at the enormity of God's salvation plans? That is, promises thousands of years ago, to a niche group of people in the ancient Near East were big enough to include you? Will you rejoice even more that these plans are bigger than just yourself? That salvation is not just for you, but for those lost souls in the centenary suburbs, in Toowoomba, Indonesia, Brunei, China, North Africa, Russia, Europe, Africa, America, to the ends of the earth, even to the Jews today, even to the most hardened enemies of the gospel, even to my work colleague who I thought was beyond saving. Friends, to rejoice and glorify God is the only appropriate response to God's plan of salvation. To respond with arrogance 
or with jealousy or even with apathy is to have too big a view for yourself and too small a view of God. So brothers and sisters, rejoice. Give give praise to our Savior, the King of life, because we stand together in the gospel of Jesus Christ. But friends, we don't stop at just rejoicing. The salvation we rejoice in is a salvation for every single nation, even the ones at the ends of the earth. So how can we possibly rejoice without also having a desire to see the gospel go out beyond these four wars? Now, thankfully, I'm pretty sure that most of us know this to be true and embrace it as best as we can. We know we ought to reach others with the gospel. It's one of our five key purpose areas of our church, to reach others with the gospel. And so it's an outcome that we strive towards as a church in order to be better as a church. But the question is, how far ought we to go with reaching the gospel? How broad should our gospel horizon be? Now, you know what a horizon is? We normally talk about it in terms of how far we can see into the distance. The horizon is the limit of which we can see. Our gospel horizon is the limit of who we might seek to reach for the gospel. Now, sometimes it's good to have a a closer or a narrower horizon. You see, the Salt Ministry has a gospel horizon to reach the high school teenagers of SLE Church and their friends for the gospel. Uh, The evangelical student group at UQ seeks to reach the UQ campus with the gospel. That's their gospel horizon. What should our gospel horizon be at SLE Church? Is it to reach the people of St. Lucia with the gospel? Or should it be bigger than that? Uh, The SLE staff team have just returned from a rich and uplifting week at the Reach Australia National Conference. And while we were deeply encouraged by the great gospel work in churches and ministries around Australia, we were also deeply challenged by the fact that despite all of that great work, we are still one of the most unevangelized countries in this world. And there is still more work to do to reach Australia with the gospel. And SLE Church is part of that work. And so in light of this, maybe perhaps our gospel horizon should be to reach Australia with the gospel, beginning with the centenary suburbs in seven weeks' time. But I think God's plan of salvation compels us to think even bigger than that. Bigger than the centenary suburbs, than Brisbane, than Australia, than Southeast Asia. At SLE Church, our gospel horizon ought to be global. We ought to reach not just St. Lucia, not just Brisbane, not just Australia. We ought to reach the world with the gospel. If our horizon is small, then our proclamation of the gospel will be small. And more importantly, our view of God will be small. 
which is why our horizon must be global. Because God's plan is to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. God's horizon is global. And so, brothers and sisters, in light of this, let me leave you with two questions. First question is this, how much more do you need to grow your gospel horizon? How much more do you need to grow your gospel horizon? That's the first question. The second question is, how much bigger do your prayers need to become? How much bigger do your prayers need to become? God's plan is, and always has been, to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And He uses us, His people and His church, to be a light for the nation, to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ so that everyone appointed to eternal life might believe and embrace Jesus as their Lord and Savior. So brothers and sisters, let's rejoice at this great salvation. Let's get on with the task of proclaiming salvation to St. Lucia, to centenary suburbs, and beyond to the ends of the earth. And let's pray big prayers knowing that God has and always will be faithful to His big promises. Let's pray. God of the nations, we pray that you would lift our eyes to see the vastness of your salvation plan. Help us to recognize that our Lord Jesus was raised to bring salvation through the forgiveness of sins to both Jew and Gentile, to people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue. Father, make SLE Church a light for the nations as we seek to reach St. Lucia, to reach the centenary suburbs, to reach our city Brisbane, to reach our nation Australia, to reach the world for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray that we will not see anyone as being beyond your salvation. Expand our gospel horizon and cause us to rejoice. We pray all this in the name of the one who has won salvation for all nations, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen.